You're listening to All Men Conversation, an event series that dives into important topics, themes, and trends in the mental health care space. This discussion was recorded live via Zoom on April 17th, 2020. Best-selling author and psychotherapist Lori Gottlieb joined Alma founder and CEO Harry Ritter to talk about collective loss and ambiguous grief during the COVID-19 pandemic. Following some technical issues, I, Nina Roth, head of community and operations at Alma, jumped in to ask Lori some questions. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Um, welcome to everybody who's joining us on this very, very special um, uh, session for Alma. I want to uh, say just a few seconds, introduce Alma, and then introduce our very special guest today. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm Harry. Um, I'm the CEO and founder of Alma. Uh, we are a community of mental health professionals here in New York City, um, and our, our, our mission as a business is really to help the incredible providers out there who are um, at the front lines of taking care of those who need it, and now uh, is a time more than ever where, boy, do we need it. We need great professionals out there who are uh, helping take care of all of us who are, I think, experiencing enormous uh, challenge and trauma and grief uh, during what has been an incredibly difficult time really in the history of mankind. We are incredibly fortunate today to have uh, Lori Gottlieb with us uh, from LA uh, joining us uh, to speak a little bit about um, some of these challenges. She's written obviously a ton recently on some of these issues and so we're just so honored to have you here today and Lori I think particularly the opportunity to speak to a provider audience where you know these are really the people who are out there not just experience not just taking care of others but also simultaneously experiencing grief and trauma and, and challenges as a result of everything going on so someone like you who can come out and, and, and speak uh, to all of us and provide words of encouragement and also guidance uh, means the universe to us I don't Lori really doesn't need much introduction, but just briefly, Lori is a, um, a world-renowned psychotherapist, the author of a New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, phenomenal book. If anyone hasn't read it, uh, you need to read it. It is really very, very special. Um, in addition to her clinical practice, she writes for the Atlantic's um, weekly Dear Therapist advice column and is a regular contributor to the New York Times, uh, among many other publications. And Lori, it was really, I think, one of your recent pieces in the Times that uh, prompted uh, my email to you and, and us setting this call up around uh, collective loss and, and ambiguous grief. So I'm hoping we can start there just for one last word of introduction. So um, I, we have collected questions from, from members of our community. I will be going through those questions that we've sort of reorganized um, for, for a little while. If you have other questions that come up during the conversation, feel free to add them to the Q&A function within Zoom. Uh, and Nina Roth, who runs our community uh, here at Alma, will uh, try to get a few of those teed up so we can talk about them as we, as, we, as we move on through. So again, Lori, thank you again. Welcome. We're so excited to have you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having this conversation. So Lori, I want to start with... Uh, your New York Times piece. Uh, we all uh, really appreciated um, the thoughtfulness of the words that you, uh, you put down and, and, and put forward for others there. How did, it, how did this topic come into focus for you around collective loss and ambiguous grief? And, and why uh, is it so important to name that feeling, particularly right now? Well, first of all, I wanted to write about the that there's no, this isn't sort of the grief Olympics. There's no hierarchy of grief. And that comes from what I wrote about in the book about there's no hierarchy of pain, that sometimes we rank our pain. Like, you know, somebody, you've had a miscarriage, but you didn't lose an eight-year-old child. You had a breakup, but it wasn't a divorce, right? And so um, I think we're doing that right now with grief. Um, you know, you didn't get to go to your college graduation, but it wasn't like you got the coronavirus. 
Um, you know, um, did you lose a job? No, you didn't lose a job. Then you have no right to complain about the fact that you're socially isolated. Right. Um, so I, I think that we really need to understand that we're all going through collective grief because we're all losing something as a result of what's going on right now. And that we need to have compassion for one another. We need to understand that everybody's loss is real. And, um, and instead of comparing losses, maybe we need to have more understanding of the fact that we're all going through this tremendous period of hardship, grief, loss, anxiety, um, that we're all much more the same right now than we are different and to look for those similarities rather than the differences. That's a great, um, a great point to, to launch, for, launch to another question I wanted to ask you about. In your view, you know, there's, there's both the, um, the collective trauma that we're experiencing as a, a society and its ability to create empathy among others because we're all experiencing it together and simultaneously. And then also sort of the challenges that come with that. Who's there to take care of you? If everybody's experiencing it, who, who takes care of you? Can you talk a little bit about how you're seeing that particularly play out in the provider-client relationship, how clinicians have to struggle with this and deal with that as, a, as an area of, of issue right now? Yeah, so I think as a therapist, we always have to be really mindful of self-care. And it's not just some buzzword. You know, I think therapists talk about it all the time, but a lot of people don't practice it. And that means, you know, are you seeing the number of clients that make sense for you and not overloading yourself? Do you have breaks between clients, even if it's 15 minutes, as opposed to just the back to back? Um, can you eat or go to the bathroom in between clients? Um, you know, or do you have five straight hours of clients and like you're, you have low blood sugar and you haven't peed in a long time, right? These are the realities of, of just being a therapist. I think right now there's so much demand for therapy. And I think our instinct as helping professionals is to say yes to every single person who wants to see us when they want to see us. And because we're off, I think most of us are at home, um, like I am, we're doing virtual sessions. It's kind of like, you can have a session with someone at nine o'clock at night. You can have a session with someone at six in the morning. It doesn't really matter, but it does because you need to see the people in your friend group or family group, meaning virtually or however you're doing it or if they're in your home. Um, you need to go to sleep at a normal time. You need to have some breaks for yourself. Um, you can't just be doing all output. You have to get something in, like filling up the gas tank. So I think we need to be really careful about wanting to help others, but also knowing that the only way that we can truly help others is if we are taking care of ourselves. We will be no use to people if we aren't taking care of ourselves. You've written about ways that the therapist brings themselves and their lived experience into the therapy room. Can you speak a little bit more about ambiguous grief in that context? How are you talking about your own experience right now? That's such a great question because I think that we, a lot of us believe that as therapists, um, you know, we need to be the container for our clients. But as I say at the beginning of my book, maybe you should talk to someone, I say that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I use my humanity in the room all the time. And I don't mean that I am doing anything inappropriate, that I am um, crossing boundaries in a way that um, that I don't feel is right, and that, or even that I'm self-disclosing. It, it's more that when somebody comes in right now, and they say, you know, uh, you know, are you scared? Are you worried? Like a good parent, right? I'm honest about it. I'll say, yeah, you know, at times I'm worried. And also here's how I deal with it. And let's talk about how, what, how you might deal with it in your life. So I think to pretend that we aren't having a reaction to what's going on around us um, is a real disconnect for our clients. You know, I think it makes them feel like we aren't human. We aren't real. We don't understand what they're going through. So it, I think it's important to just be, be very real um, and you can be real and also a container at the same time. 
Do you have any advice for clinicians who are working with clients experiencing the loss of a loved one and navigating grief when we can't be near others and hold funerals or memorials? I have some personal experience with that. Um, my father died a few weeks ago, um, not from the coronavirus. So I know there are lots of people dying from the coronavirus, um, which I think is a different experience. Um, so I'll speak to both. Um, so a lot of people have my experience, which is someone that they love died unrelated to the coronavirus. My father was suffering from congestive heart failure and we had to not have a funeral because we couldn't have people there. We couldn't, in, I'm Jewish and we sit Shiva and that's our tradition where our people for seven days are coming in and out of the house all the time and they bring you meals and they share memories and they hug you and they're just present for you. So we didn't get any of that. And I think that a lot of people are experiencing um, that kind of, you know, isolation during this time when they're grieving. Um, and I think that, um, you know, for people who are dying, uh, people who have loved ones who are dying of the coronavirus, um, they're experiencing something similar, which is that, you know, they often weren't there, they couldn't be at their bedside because of the contagion. Um, so they have that issue of what it was like to lose a loved one, um, and, and not be able to be present for them. Thank you so much for sharing. I know that we, we actually read in a piece that you shared that you lost your father recently. So thank you for being, being vulnerable with us. And I'm sure like during this time, it's just been so interesting and different and crazy for so many people. I'm wondering, you know, how do we as people, as providers, as a society stay resilient through all of this? One of the things that I've been so inspired by is, and we don't talk about that so much. We talk about, you know, all of the anxiety and all of the challenge, which is all very real. But I think what's equally real is how resilient we have all been. Um, even if we're struggling, how adaptable, how creative and flexible. If you had said to us, um, or if you said to me personally, let's say, but I think it applies to a lot of people, uh, several months ago, if you'd said, you're going to be um, in your home, you're not going to be able to go to work, you're going to, if you leave, uh, the only things you can leave for is are the grocery store and the pharmacy, and even then it's dicey, and you're going to have to wear a mask if you do that, and gloves, and not touch anything, and this is going to go on indefinitely. Um, I think that I might have said, like, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. <laughs> and I think a lot of people might have said, well, I, I don't think I can make it through that. But look at all of us. Look at what we're doing. We're doing virtual book clubs. We are bringing meals to the neighbor across the street who is alone. We are, my son is doing this thing where he's paired with a Holocaust survivor um, who's alone. And most of these Holocaust survivors are in their 80s and 90s. And they've already gone through significant trauma, obviously. And um, a lot of times when there's a new trauma, you re-experience old traumas. And so he's in this program where teenagers are, are being a buddy to a Holocaust survivor and they call them and check in on them and have conversations with them. So I think that we are, you know, you've seen like the Philharmonics where that where people are, all of the musicians are in their respective homes and they put together like Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Um, people are doing virtual dance parties. I think people are adapting. We are so much more adaptable than we imagined we would be. Um, and so I think people are so focused on, well, I'm really struggling with this or it's really hard or I'm, I'm feeling this depression or I'm feeling this anxiety. Yes, and. So what I wrote about in one piece was the both and, that both things are equally true. Just like my son is home right now doing remote learning. And I'm so glad that I get these little moments with him because he's a teenager. And, you know, normally we don't, I don't get to be privy to his life in maybe the same way, um, even though the circumstances under which I'm seeing him are horrific. And, and I'm wondering how or what 
might we learn from this experience both as individuals and as a community? I think we learn how interconnected we are so much of the time in what well, let's just call them normal times. We get so caught up in our individual days and all of the things on our minds that we forget how connected we are to other people. And I think that that plays out as, you know, in the therapy world where people will come into my office all the time and they'll say, you know, is this weird that I'm experiencing this? Or they feel so isolated in their experience. And yet if we would just talk to each other more, and that's why the book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, but it doesn't necessarily mean maybe you should talk to a therapist. It means we need to talk more to one another because if we talk more to one another, we see that underneath it all, we are so alike. So I, I, and I think that that helps us just to know, oh, you know, me too. I experienced this too. Oh, you experience it too. Wow. It's just, there's something, um, so I think, I think that people feel relief immediately when they know that they're connected to another person and to lots of other people. So I think we're seeing that a lot now. And I hope that we can carry that out when we start to emerge from this. And I don't think we're going to emerge in one fell swoop. I think it's going to be a process of emerging. Um, I hope we can carry that knowledge that I think we've, you know, we've really been, um, I, I want to say we always know that, but I think it's, it's been in the forefront right now. And I hope that we can carry that with us after we go back to some kind of normalcy. Yeah. I mean, and one question that we had uh, around like the difference between what's happening now and sort of ordinary times, what's the difference between ambiguous grief and concrete or ordinary grief? How might they show up differently? Yeah. So concrete grief is you lost something very specific, you know, so-and-so died and you're grieving over that. You lost a job and you're grieving over that. So that's something very concrete. The ambiguous grief is something where you don't, you can't really name what it is that you lost. So you see that with single people a lot who they, they, they go around with this grief of they're, they're grieving the loss of the person they haven't met yet. <laughs> you know, Like they don't have that. They're grieving the loss of this person. They don't know where that person is or if they will ever find that person. So it's very ambiguous. There's that loss. I think right now there's this uncertainty. You know, it's almost like there's these studies that have been done with cancer patients where when people don't know what's wrong with their bodies um, and they're having these symptoms, it makes them very, very anxious. When they find out they have cancer, even though that's the worst news that, you know, most people don't want that news, um, it, there's some relief in that because it's like, oh, now I know what it is and now I know what I need to do. So I think right now there's that uncertainty of we don't know how much more we're going to lose. We don't even know exactly what it is that we've lost. There are some tangible things, but there are some really intangible things. And I think when you're in the middle of trauma, which I think this is for a lot of us, you don't really know what you've lost until later on when you can see the trauma through the rearview mirror. So that's the kind of ambiguous grief I think that we're all experiencing. And how do you feel that we can help clients navigate feelings of powerlessness in this personal and global grief. You know, I wrote recently a piece about the difference between productive anxiety and unproductive anxiety. And in productive anxiety, you're reasonably worried about something. And so it's productive to be worried about it because it means that you're taking action. So for example, we're all worried about the spread of the coronavirus. So it's productive for us to worry about it because that means we're going to social distance. We're going to wash our hands. We're going to wear masks. We're going to do everything that we can to, um, to prevent ourselves from, from getting it and to prevent our community from getting it. Unproductive anxiety is what a lot of us are also doing right now, which is obsessive rumination. Mm -hmm. So you're ruminating about something in the future that hasn't happened and may never happen. So that's what we call futurizing, future tripping, catastrophizing. Um, and in that, in that case, um, you're not being productive. 
you know, because you're already taking the steps that you need to take in the moment. So people who are checking the news every hour and looking for the latest update, people who all they do with their friends on FaceTime is talk about the coronavirus. We need to protect our psychological immune systems as much as we need to protect our physical immune systems. So if we don't give ourselves breaks and if we overload our psychological immune system with 24-7 coronavirus, then it's going to break down. And we don't want that to happen. So I think people feel like, well, I can't experience joy in the middle of a pandemic. That's not right. I feel guilty for enjoying myself, like reading a book or playing a board game with your family or um, having a dance party or saying, you know, I have a little bit more downtime than I did before. And oh, I can't admit that I'm actually liking slowing down a little bit. You know, it feels like not politically correct. But the fact is, both things are true. We're in the middle of a global pandemic and you can still, you're still human and there's still, you know, there are many notes in the song and one note in the song is there's a global pandemic and another note in the song is I'm really enjoying these 20 minutes of reading this book right now. And are there any, I mean, just as sort of a follow-up to that, are there any tangible resources that um, providers can be sharing with clients during this time? I think, you know, you go on the internet and, and they're everywhere. I, I think that's what's so nice is everybody's posting resources. Um, I think they're so easy to find right now in, in, you know, pre-corona time. Maybe people would have to search a little bit more. Now you type in like coronavirus resources and you'll have, you know, uh, 20 pages right there. Yeah. I mean, and how about those clients who live alone, are are sort of isolated in a way that um, those with partners and living with family um, aren't during this time? Do you have any recommendations for working with people really isolated? Yeah. Well, so I have two things to say about that. The first is that I think the language that we use really impacts the way that we think about our situation and it impacts our, the, our emotions. So like in my, I did this TED talk about how the stories we tell inform the way we live our lives. And a lot of people are watching that TED talk right now. That's a resource, by the way, if you want to get people, um, because a lot of people are finding it really useful about changing their story a little bit. So we use this word isolated. That's our story. We're isolated. We aren't actually isolated. We are physically distanced from people, but I'm talking to you right now. I'm not in solitary confinement. I can talk to literally anybody that I want through my phone or my laptop at any time of the day or night. Um, So we're not isolated in that way. If I want to leave my house and go for a walk, social distanced and I have a mask on, I can do that, right? So, um, you know, I can wave at another human being and they can wave back at me from across the street. So I think that this, this idea that we're isolated, that's a horrible term because we're not sitting in a dark cell in solitary confinement. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing I think that's really funny that I've noticed from clinical practice is that a lot of the families that I'm seeing, they'll say like, I'm so tired of the people in my family. I love them dearly, but it's the same stories, the same jokes, the same anecdotes, the same irritating habits that are magnified and amplified during this time. And and so they really want to hear from like, you know, their, their friends who are living alone because they have like new things to talk about, new people to talk to. The people who are living alone will say to me like, I'm, I feel so alone and there's nobody to talk to. And I'll say, and they're like, everyone's in families. And I'll say, well, why don't you call one of these families? because I can tell you with firsthand knowledge, they are dying to hear from you. 
<laughs> they will give anything to hear from you. They are, they are, they are asking me to please ask anybody you know else to please call in and save them from the monotony of of the families that they love very much. But the single people are feeling like, or the people who are alone are feeling like, I don't want to disturb them. They have kids, they have partners, they have so much on their plates. Well, they want the break. So um, it's a it's a mutual, it's a mutually satisfying experience. If um, please reach out. I, I think all these stories that we tell ourselves about why people don't want to hear from us or why we're a burden or why we might be interrupting them. Please change that story. The, the real story is everybody really wants to connect. Everybody is, is really interested in, um, in having these conversations and also conversations, again, not about the coronavirus, but about like, Hey, what show are you watching on Netflix right now? And what book are you reading? And, um, you know, just, the, the, the little, the, the moments of life, the minutiae, the things that make us human. We have to remember the things that make us human. I guess to build on that, I think um, there are some clients I think who have this extreme anxiety. So for sure, there's like the technology that's linking them to others and, and that you're so right, has been so instrumental and helpful during this time for people to connect with one another. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on sort of those clients with extreme anxiety where leaving the house is even a hurdle. I mean, even with the mask kind of stepping outside, I guess any advice on, on how to address that, that extreme anxiety that's coming up for some clients? Yeah. So I think that there, I've seen two things with people with pre-existing anxiety. The first is that for some people, it gets amplified um, during times of stress, like now. Especially when they, if they have some kind of um, germaphobic tendencies, this is going to be really anxiety provoking for them. And so, you know, for those people, I say do what you need to do to feel safe. So, you know, we're all isolating anyway, and I'm using that word isolating, which I probably shouldn't, but we're all we're all staying in our homes as much as possible. Um, you can have really anything delivered. Um, you know, your groceries can be delivered. You can sterilize everything the second it comes in the house. Um, do those things if it makes you feel more comfortable. A lot of us who don't have a pre-existing anxiety disorder are doing those things anyway right now. And that's the second group of people that I see, which is people with pre-existing anxiety who are like, I feel so understood right now. Everybody else is feeling this anxiety. This is my normal. You guys are all calling it the new normal. This is my normal. And now they feel like, oh, the people who are, who are, you know, their families and friends who never understood. Now they say, oh, now I understand what your daily life is like. Now I understand because it's so hard for us. I can only imagine how hard it is for you. Yeah. Um, and wondering, you know, this conversation is so important because we're normalizing this idea of grief and ambiguous grief. Some have said that there are stages of grief. In your mind, are there stages of ambiguous grief as well? And, and how does someone know if they're stuck in an unhealthy place? Right. So in, in maybe you should talk to someone, I wrote a lot about grief. And uh, one of the things I said was that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's famous stages of grieving were not intended for the survivors. They were like a construct for people who were grieving their own deaths. They were for terminally ill patients. So I think that people mistakenly think that those steps are steps for the survivors, but also steps for like linear steps. And they're not. So people might feel depressed. They might feel anger, they might feel like denial, you know, they might feel whatever in different ways at different times. And you might not go through every single one of those steps. And they're certainly not linear. So, um, you know, I think it's more about integrating the loss into our lives. 
And what does that look like? And so I write more um, specifically about this in the book. If people are curious, I feel like, you know, when you say what happens when people are stuck, I don't think the stages are discreet like that. Thank you for that. And and we had a, a few questions come in. One that's interesting. How can we help our clients and ourselves with family members who have different political beliefs and are not following stay at home orders? There's a huge lack of control with the government response and with how we're able to control our family members' responses. For example, I have a few clients with older patients who are ignoring stay-at-home orders. Yes, yes. You know, this comes up so much um, in uh, divorced couples right now where the kids are going back and forth between two homes and one home feels differently than the other. And also just in families where um, say that somebody in the couple was more of the of the worrier and the other person was more laid back. Just that was those were their general personalities. And then now here we are where it feels like, and it is life or death, Right. So, um, you know, how do people talk about these differences? So if you're in the same household, that's a different conversation because it really does affect everybody in the household. If it's somebody else, a family member outside of your household, the, I, I think you have to lead with emotion and not lead with, here's the government order. You know, um, you have to lead with, I really care about you and I really love you. And I'm going to, I'm going to send you some, some information about this and you send them, you know, whatever information is out there, the scientific studies that they can read, but you can't control what they're going to do. And I think we have to let go of that, that right now we really focus on doing what we can do, informing people as much as possible, telling them how much we care about them and why we're giving them this information, which is because we love them and we don't want to see something happen happen to them. And, and then, you know, it's out of our hands at that point. Um, and in terms of, um, in terms of people in your own household, I think again, getting under the emotions of it, instead of like arguing about the content, which is, well, what do you mean you're going to go out? And what do you mean you're not going to wear a mask? Um, it's how are you feeling about everything that's happening? And let me, you know, I want to hear about your experience and, and are you feeling anxious about this? Um, you know, maybe they, you know, it seems like maybe they're, they're not focusing on it because it makes them too anxious to imagine that this, this is very real. Um, and once you start having those conversations, I think that people are more apt to compromise. Yeah. What about the clients who are really depressed and the impact of the lack of, of physical touch actually is, is detrimental? Yeah, it is. They call that skin hunger. There's a term for it. And um, skin hunger is real. So, um, you know, I think that, that, that sadly, um, you know, I think some people have pets and, and that's, a, that's something that can help with that. Um, just being able to pet your cat or your dog um, is very helpful. If they don't have a pet, it's going to be really hard. And so they're going to have to sort of manage again, we go back to grief, they're going to have to manage this loss and know also that it is temporary, because it is temporary. I think that what we do as humans is we don't do well with uncertainty. And so when we don't know something, we fill in the rest of the story. So we have some sense of control over it. But the problem is we usually fill it in with something negative. Um, So and, and negative to our emotional health too. So instead of saying, we don't know how long this is going to last. Oh my God, it might last a year is where we go with it. As opposed to, we don't know how long it's going to last. Let's take it week by week and see what we, what we learn. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything that you'd like to leave us with any last, last note that, that you can sort of leave the, the crowd with. I think that on the one hand, it's a really, really challenging time and there's no way around that. So instead of trying to kind of fix people's pain, I think it's really important to sit with them in their pain and to be there with them in their pain. Um, it's the same as when you're seeing somebody, you know, in, in the book, I write about this woman who has terminal cancer and I, I sit with her in her pain. I can't fix it for her, but we have this real, this really meaningful time together that 
is very healing for both of us. And so if you can just sit with your patients. And I think the other thing too is to be real with them, like I said before, and also to scan for strengths in your patients and in yourself. So don't just look for what is not working for them, but help them to identify and to name um, something surprising that they've learned about themselves through this process. You can say to them something like, what is something surprising that you learned about yourself in terms of how you're managing this, in terms of your strengths, in terms of your adaptability, in terms of your creativity, your flexibility? Every single patient that I've asked that of, even the ones who felt initially like they couldn't name one thing, were able to name things. And it really left them with something to hold on to and to and to kind of, again, with that, like with my TED Talk, to change the narrative a little bit that they aren't so helpless, that actually they do have some control over their response to what's happening. They get to choose how they're responding to the situation. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about events, programming, and other membership perks at Alma, visit helloalma.com or email membership at helloalma.com. That's helloalma.com. Thank you.